This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 36 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm joined by another fantastic guest. He is the creator of Homebrew, Promise Kit, and many other more projects. It's Max Howell. Welcome to the show, Max. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, it's like great to have you on. So uh, I don't get a new Mac that often, but whenever I do, I like to do a fresh install, you know, like clean things up a little bit and only kind of move the things over that I really need. Uh, but there's one thing that I always install pretty much like 10 minutes within powering the machine on, and that's homebrew. <laughs> <laughs> Is it the same for you? Yeah, pretty pretty quickly. Like honestly, I usually wait until there's something I need, but it doesn't take very long. Yeah, I, I don't I don't install it until I need it, which is how it ended up being developed in the first place. Really, it's just I needed something. Yeah, exactly. I can imagine. Uh, for me, it's like I try to install as many things as I can from Homebrew. Like if it's on Homebrew, I will usually get it from there because that way it can be all managed for me, and I can update it that way. And you know, it's just really convenient. Uh, that was the idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, we just met at FrenchKit uh, like a month or so ago now, and uh, there you gave a really nice talk called Brew Create. And in that talk, you told kind of the origin story of homebrew. And I personally always find it super inspiring to kind of hear the origin story of these like big popular projects. So uh, why don't you tell the story again here? Like exactly how did homebrew kind of come to be? Well, it was a need. I was working uh, in London at Lost Femme, and we developed apps for iPhone, Android, Windows, Mac, Linux, and BlackBerry. And the package management solution that everyone used on Mac at that time was Mac Ports. And I found it uh, inadequate for our needs. So we were ending up writing like a bunch of scripts to do things that we needed it to do. And in the end, I started considering how hard it would be for me to write my own package manager, <laughs> <laughs> which is, I think, how a lot of these projects start, because you have no idea how hard some of these problems are. Everything seems like it should be a lot simpler than it actually is. But we were in the pub, and I was talking about it, and I, everyone was like, yeah, okay, Max, <laughs> you go ahead. You you make your own package manager. Like, Why not make another package manager? Since right. we were regularly dealing with like four or five because of all the different platforms. But we did most of our development on Mac because it was the unifying platform. You could run uh, a virtual uh, machine in order to have Windows running, and then you could cross-compile quite easily to all the other platforms. It was a Unix system with a much more pleasant graphical environment. Yeah. Like, I was a big Linux user. I had been for years, and I'd only just switched over to the Mac because a very similar rationale to why I built Homebrew, in fact. Like, on Linux, you can learn a hell of a lot. I, I seriously recommend everyone try to use Linux for work at some point in their lives, because you'll learn an awful lot about how operating systems work. And the things that these neat little graphical tools and system preferences on Mac do like are uh, much more involved than you think, and you learn how the intricacies of these lower-level things work. But Linux always breaks. <laughs> that should be the slogan for Linux. <laughs> Linux, it always breaks. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know how much better it is nowadays because I haven't booted up Linux 
for the graphical environment at least, in a while. I think it depends a lot on the distribution, right? And there's definitely distributions that are more geared towards like providing a better user experience in terms of the UI and these kind of things, while uh, some of the kind of quote-unquote purer distributions, they are more like, here's a command line and have fun. <laughs> <laughs> yep, uh, there's a flavor of Linux for every kind of personality. Like, right, is- exactly. It's also a problem. It means there's an awful lot of work that's repeated continuously. But it does make an environment where uh, people try out new ideas, and if they succeed, they get adopted by other distributions. So it has its pluses and minuses, just like everything in tech, really. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we were building, uh, we had so many scripts and tools and different package managers we needed. And I was like, well, I need to make something that can be cross-platform, that gives us the power and flexibility that we need in order to get work done. And uh, so we can get out of the way and uh, we can just uh, get on with the thing that we actually were paid to do, which was build these apps. Right. Um, but like halfway through building it, I quit because <laughs> <laughs> the iPhone had been out for about a year. Um, and then uh, Steve Jobs announced the App Store. And then uh, about a few months after that, I saw that people were like producing these really crappy games and uh, making loads of money out of them. I think it was Doodle Jump that convinced me that I could do the same thing. All right. So I quit in order to make games and become rich. But in order to make my games, I needed a decent package manager. Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) And I ended up just spending more and more time on the package manager because I was enjoying it so much and I didn't get any of my game ideas done. (laughs) (laughs) I love to hear that. It's uh, so, so much the same for me for many of my projects, like uh, games in particular, like I was working on some games with some of my friends and I was like, well, why don't I write my own game engine? And then, you know, that kind of brought me down that whole rabbit hole. And uh, it's fun because you realize, like, you start with this idea that you need to solve a concrete problem. And the tool that you're building at the beginning is like a means to an end. Mm -hmm. But then at some point you kind of start switching and you feel like the tool itself is what you actually want to build, right? So the journey (laughs) becomes the reward in that sense, right? Yeah, that's basically my entire career. Yes, <laughs> like I just always end up writing these tools. So I've always wanted to write games. That's how I got into programming in the first place. Awesome. So uh, you wanted to solve the problem of package management for your game development. Uh, and uh, how did it kind of go from there, like actually building some tool to uh, solve your own needs to creating something like Homebrew, which is obviously a much, much more kind of general purpose tool? Well, while building it, I realized how useful it was to me. And very quick, like I'd done so much open source at this point. Uh, very quickly, I was like, well, I need to open source this, get other people interested. Like for me, it's if, if nobody else is interested in the tool, then probably you're not really do, solving the problem correctly. So it's always like a, a litmus test for me. Right. If, if it's not something other people take any interest in or, and contribute to and use, then you, you're doing something wrong. So I put it out there. But... I expected like some interest and got none at all. (laughs) Uh, And it occurred to me that I needed to do more marketing, that this is one of the first open source projects I'd done where I started it rather than getting involved. So I found um, via Twitter, uh, someone I followed asked a question on superuser.com asking how to manage dependencies on a Mac when you're compiling from source. 
And for me, this was one of the big things that I built Homebrew to do because I needed my dependencies slightly modified from like the uh, vanilla form. And this is something that MacPools just didn't help you to do. Like, I really built Homebrew to be useful to developers as well as everybody else. Like you only need to modify like 5% of your tooling as a developer. Uh, the other 95%, you just want it to work and get installed. So I, and at the point as well, because I've been working on this for so long and also because of all the work I've done on Linux and all the work at Last Fem where we were using so many different package managers and operating systems and other build tooling, I, I really knew an awful lot. Like, I'm not sure I could really <laughs> be as qualified anymore, but at that point, I was probably one of the bigger experts in the world. So I answered this question very thoroughly. And then at the end, I pitched Homebrew saying that it used some of the philosophies of how to manage your dependencies that I talked about. And that got the first amount of interest in the project. Like this was before stars on GitHub, 2010 it was. Uh huh. So forks were the way you could tell if people were interested or not. And like I woke up the next day and looked through my activity feed and it was a fork and a fork and a fork and a fork and a fork. And I was like, oh, wow, so I've got some attention. And I got the first few users contributing formula, uh, which is one of the key parts of why Homebrew succeeded is that I really, I didn't want to write all these formula myself. Like it was extremely important that other people helped. So I, I built it from the, the beginning to uh, be extremely easy to contribute to. Uh, like I built it on top of GitHub so people could easily clone and talk about the project. Like before this, before GitHub, open source was a lot harder to get into. The repository would be on SourceForge, which still exists in some form for some reason. And then you'd have a mailing list where people talk to each other and probably an IRC channel. But it didn't facilitate actually talking about the code. Right. That there wasn't a way to reference parts of the code on a, a web platform, which made it simple. And the forking idea was uh, quite innovative, really, if you can believe it. Like open source has always been about the idea that you can fork it if you don't want things that the maintainer does. But uh, it was very hard to fork before GitHub. Yeah, absolutely. So I built it on top of uh, GitHub and uh, so people could easily fork and then contribute. Uh, also, like I built in a command into the tool to create new formula and it laid out a template and it had lots of comments in it. So it was very simple to see how to contribute. You did brew create, you pushed a fork, and then you messaged me because this was before pull requests even. Right. <laughs> say, hey, like this, you should add this formula to homebrew. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, and I, I laid this out very clearly in the readme. People could see how to get involved really quickly. So this led to a lot of interest. And then suddenly it was featured on Hacker News. And the, the hour after that, like the amount of contribution that was happening was uh, incredible. Like, I don't think there's probably ever been a project that got that many contributors that fast. And in my talk at FrenchKit, I showed the video of how this happened and how like insane it became very quickly, which I think is the best way to understand what I'm talking about here. Yeah, it's uh, it's really amazing to see. And uh, it's, again, one of these things where, you know, when you're working on something like this, you usually don't have any idea what kind of impact it will have on the community. And even when you launch something, like when you pushed it onto GitHub and nothing really happened, it can be kind of uh, easy to kind of get a little bit discouraged by that. And you can be like, oh, I worked on this thing for so long and no one cares. <laughs> but it's usually just that you just need that spark, right? Mm -hmm. Like that spark that happened for you when you when you posted on, on that Q&A side where, you know, someone saw it and they spread it to their friends and they spread it to their friends. And then all of a sudden you have this network effect and all of a sudden you're on, on Hacker News. So mm -hmm. those things can happen so much quicker than what you might think. And this is something that I always 
tell people whenever someone asks me, like, you know, how do I spread the word about my open source project? And the boring answer is often like, be patient, <laughs> because that's usually the, the number one ingredient is patience. You have to keep working on it, even when nobody's interested. Yeah. It has to be good. It's not going to get any attention if it's not good. I frankly feel that's a big problem with iOS open source nowadays is uh, there is an easy path to virality via some of these weekly mailing lists. And people put that stuff, put something pretty good out there, and then like it gets featured, and then they stick that on the resume, but then they never contribute to it again. They never like do anything with it. It's a shame. There's so much stale open source out there where you go and there's tickets that have been open for over a year. There's no conversation. There's no new commits. Yeah, keeping things going is really, really hard. And also, you yourself might have moved on from that idea, right? You might have done that thing as a way to solve a problem for you right now. But for some reason, you weren't interested in just keep working on that problem or that in that space. And you just solved the problem and wanted to move on. So yeah, that can definitely be challenging. And I want to get back to that a little bit later in the show when we want to talk more about specifically uh, how you scale open source and kind of how you get more people involved and how you can keep something like that going because obviously homebrew you know it's been going now for many many years uh, but I also want to ask you a little bit about your time at Apple because you actually worked at Apple for a while and you even worked on the Swift package manager so that must have been like in the really early days when the Swift package manager project was just getting started right yeah I joined like it was only about three months before Swift was open sourced with the package manager as part of it. So there was very little time to produce it. I think they've been looking for someone for a while to take on that role. And the only reason they approached me was because of my Google tweet, uh, which was uh, because I got rejected from Google famously. Uh, that's <laughs> the second biggest thing I'm known for, which... Yeah. The Google tweets. It's yeah. homebrew and the Google tweet. I should have said that in the intro instead of promise kit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, that got me the job. And I think that they've been looking for someone to do this, the Swift package manager. And like I was the person doing it. So I was only there a year. And I'd like to apologize to the community in a way because I feel that it, Swift package manager would be a better solution right now if I hadn't quit by quitting they had to push the work onto other people who already had plenty to do. Like I was in the build systems team, so they were doing the new build system at the same time. Uh, so that was, in many ways, a bigger priority for them. Yeah, and that's the new build system that launched with Xcode 10, right? Or it became the default build system in Xcode 10. Yeah, it was baited in Xcode 9. Yeah. So I was working towards Xcode 8 uh, with Swift Package Manager. Well, uh, it just it was just coming out, and then Swift was open source just after that. Uh, I didn't fit. I didn't fit well at Apple. That was the problem. I, I, open source work is so different from big corporate work, and obviously I'd worked at companies, but much smaller companies, and usually with a more open source mindset. Uh, and Apple's very. It's a difficult place if you if you knew. And in that respect, I think it was a mistake for them to try and get me to work on a key part of uh, Swift uh, being new because I couldn't get any traction with people and I couldn't get anything that I felt was important to the Swift package manager done. Well, that's not true. I think all the good features of it that it has are because I refused to allow that to stop me. I felt a huge duty to the community to make something good. It's a pity that the holes in it... I feel responsible for. 
Well, I think that the Swift package manager, at least the way I see it, uh, you know, when I talk to people in the community, is a quite beloved tool, and people just wish that it did more, right? <laughs> and it's not that the the package manager itself has a lot of holes and it's uh, it has a lot of problems. It's more like we love this thing, like we we love the Swift package manager. We want to see more of it, like we want to use it for more things. So. Yeah, I think you should be proud of what you've created with it and uh, also, you know, with your coworkers at Apple and, and the people who have taken it over since. So, yeah, I think everyone is just excited to see where it's going to go. Yeah, I, I want to say I left it in some good hands. There's uh, a guy there, Daniel Dunbar, who was extremely nice to me while I was there and understood the problems I was having and tried to help me. Uh, he's also probably one of the smartest people I've ever met and uh, had an extremely good vision for where it should go. All right, so uh, let's move on to our main topics. And uh, the first thing we want to talk about is, in fact, package managers. We want to talk about kind of what makes a good package manager, uh, the design of a package manager, and kind of uh, what a package manager really does and kind of how it fits into our overall development process. Uh, so first of all, Max, there are so many package managers out there. There is, uh, you know, obviously CocoaPods and Carthage and, you know, Swift Package Manager now and, and other smaller ones as well. Uh, and all these package managers are designed kind of differently. And some of them, they take on a kind of larger part of the overall kind of build process. If you take something like Carthage, for example, that pre-compiles uh, the libraries before you put them into Xcode. And you've got Swift Package Manager where you can you know, do builds and run tests and things using the same kind of um, uh, command line tool. So overall, kind of what's the role of a package manager for you? Like, where does it kind of fit in into our development process? Yeah, so there's two major kinds of package manager. Um, system package managers like Homebrew, uh, Debian's Apt, MacPorts, those everything that a Linux distribution comes with, the package manager that installs all the system packages. And then there's dependency managers, as the community tends to call them, although I think, you know, like both of them manage dependencies. Yeah. Which are more for languages so that you can build products. Well, the dependencies you install are meant to be installed locally and not globally as tools that other tools can use. Right. That's the role. Like, Package managers are middleware. They're things that should be very easy to use, never break, and get out of the way while still maintaining the ability for, especially for a dependency manager, the developer to have a flexible system so they can do what they need to do, so that they can get what they really want to do done. Yeah. Like you say that people love package managers. I think that, uh, that really people should not even know they exist. <laughs> right. I think that, you know, people love them because they do solve a problem, right? And for those of us who have been around before the day of even like CocoaPods, you know, managing dependencies was really difficult. <laughs> and you had to use like Git submodules, which I personally still kind of like. But the using the Git submodules wasn't a problem. It was like ending up in this like really crazy dependency graph where you might have like nested dependencies and resolving those in a nice way and uh, those dependencies might depend on some APIs that some other dependencies did not and it gets tricky really quickly especially if you're using more than just like one or two dependencies that you control yourself. So um, what kind of goes into that like when it comes to like dependency resolution and uh, you know, making sense of a dependency graph, that's also like a really big part of what a package manager does. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's a lot harder for dependency managers because 
in, which is the fault of the people who write these dependencies, really. <laughs> uh, if you're writing a system dependency, like, for instance, OpenSSL or libc, like the base of every single uh, tool and part of your platform, like libc can never break. Right. If it did, it would break the world. So it's an extremely well-maintained library that really cares about semantic versioning. Uh, if you're writing a little library which helps some developer do something like uh, put a button on the screen that flashes pretty colors if you click it, uh, these people don't care nearly as much. Well, I think they should, but they don't. And uh, you end up with a lot more dependencies as well. There's less concern because the people consuming them are developers and they know how to fix these problems, even though we don't and we hate it. And the graph becomes very complicated. Like you only have to look at Node, and like if it's, for example, like, uh, create a skeleton React Native project. It has over six hundred dependencies, and this is insane. Yeah. The job of the dependency manager at this point is to try and make it so that this stuff works, it doesn't break. And so you give the uh, people consuming that uh, who are creating libraries the tooling to specify a version. And the semantic version is the, the key. Uh, the big number at the front is the API interface. And it says that this won't change during the, say, it's 1.3. 1.4 will not break the API. It may supplement it. It may add new things. But anyone who compiled against 1.3 will be able to compile against 1.4. But this requires the person writing the dependency to care, which is why a big thing I wanted for the Swift Package Manager was for it to automate analyzing your API and confirming to you that you can call it 1.4 or you can call it 1.5. And this wouldn't have been a huge task, but I can never convince anyone that it should be done as soon as possible rather than later. Um, which is why certain package managers like Go, for example, they don't have semantic versioning. They have what's called 10 versioning, which means your package is version 10 and it will never be version 11. <laughs> you can never break the API. Uh, but this, again, it requires the developer, the person making the tool or library to be sure of that. They don't do any vetting for it. But I, I almost think a 10 versioning is the, the way things should be. Like when you have 600 dependencies in your graph, yeah, you just can't trust anyone <laughs> to to not break it. And I think that's one of the bigger issues that JavaScript developers have is that they have this enormous dependency tree and it breaks all the time. Yeah, I think one problem, like you mentioned, is uh, the fact that you need to maintain backwards compatibility. And I think it's not always uh, just coming down to whether someone cares about it or not. Sometimes, you know, mistakes happen. And yeah, I really like the idea that you have there of automating this process, like checking out an earlier version and seeing like, is the interface the same? Can I still call this from an, from an earlier version? Um, because semantic versioning is really hard. And it's funny because also a lot of different people have different definitions about it. Some people say that, you know, you can increment the minor version and break things. Well, you can't, strictly. <laughs> there, there is an RFC for semantic versioning, so it is strict. Uh, but yes, like, I just broke Promise Kit the other day because uh, it was a very important change. And I knew that it was going to affect, like, well, probably nobody. Probably. <laughs> Hopefully. So I added a case, uh, I changed a case statement in an error enum for one thing, which was at a lower level than PromiseKit itself, one of the extensions that it has. Um, but it was important because there was a bug. 
And I bumped the minor version, not the major version. Now, really, I should have bumped the major version, but this freaks people out. I get emails from people when I bump the major version. They're like, what changed? Is it really bad? Like, what should I do about this? Uh, do I dare to upgrade? <laughs> so it's a psychological thing. You, you have to try and be pragmatic about it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, package managers really come in kind of two flavors, if you will. And uh, one of them is centralized, where they keep some form of like centralized repository of all the packages that are available. And Homebrew would be an example of, of a centralized package manager. It does have some decentralized kind of characteristics with the whole cask thing, or you can have your own tap. Uh, but it, in general, it's centralized. And then you have Swift Package Manager, which is decentralized. And I find that interesting that you've worked, worked on both kind of flavors of package managers. So what would you say are kind of the pros and cons of each of these approaches? Yeah, it's, it's a trade-off. Centralized uh, repositories for packages that are vetted, that's important, by a team uh, are more reliable. They're more robust. They ensure that at any given moment, the tip where all the uh, packages exist and their versions and what they depend on compiles and works and doesn't fail. So you can in, you can guarantee some robustness. Uh, this works great for system package managers because you really want those tools to just work without messing around at all. Um, for dependency managers, for your language, uh, it's less important and the decentralization enables uh, more flexibility for the developer. Like it's much, much simpler to use somebody's fork Thus, it's more open source if it's a decentralized system. Because if, and you can maintain your own fork if you need an extra feature or you need a bug fix that hasn't been merged yet because of stagnation, which is, as I said, a big problem with open source nowadays. Yeah. So you can make your own fork and use that with a little comment in the manifest saying, using this until X merges foo, and you can have a link. Uh, so it's more useful by far for developers uh, to have de a decentralized system. It, yeah, I definitely agree. You gain a much larger degree of flexibility. And uh, I also really like that it encourages using forks and using kind of your own version of things. It's not always the way you want to go because by forking something and kind of maintaining your own fork of something, you also add some complexity because if you have an important bug fix that you want to merge in, you have to make sure that those kind of upstream changes can go into your fork as well. But it gives you that really nice flexibility of being able to kind of self-service on a bug or a new feature, where if it's something that you really want or something you really need to fix right now, you could do it quite quickly and still not have to like really update all your dependencies and the way you manage them. You can just kind of update one definition in, in, in your spec and then have things just work. Mm -hmm. I like... Uh... I think it's important for open source that decentralization is attempted. Open source is all about people moving on and someone else having to take the reins. And the only thing that inhibits that currently, in my opinion, is GitHub does not surface forks very well. So nobody has any motivation to really maintain a fork unless they need it personally. If something has gone stale, like GitHub need to step up, in my opinion. I've talked to many people about this over the years and uh, I, I wish they would, but centralization also has the benefit that it's easy to make a catalog that people can browse and then add features on top of that. But the, it really isn't possible to do that with the decentralized system. You just have to spider the network. Uh, it's just harder. And I, th I think a lot of the time people choose a centralized system because it's easier uh, rather than for the benefit of it being potentially more reliable. Like if you look at Node, NPM, they have a centralized system, but it uh, isn't vetted. So it doesn't have the the one benefit of centralization. 
So I do wonder why they made that choice. Right. So for me, it was always going to be a decentralized system for something like Swift PM. And when I got to Apple, they were surprised. They expected me to want a centralized system. And they were glad, actually, that I didn't want one because they didn't <laughs> want to have to build a catalog or a system that, um, like, ideally, you know, they would have if it was the correct choice. Apple always works very hard. That's certainly something I learned while I was there and just suspected before. They were very hard to try and make the correct choices with the correct uh, series of trade-offs that work for their goals. So they would have, but uh, they were pleasantly surprised that I didn't want it. And I, it's the right choice. Yeah. Discoverability is definitely uh, a lot easier when you have a centralized system. Because, for example, you can go to CocoaPods, you can search for anything that you need, really, and chances are that you will find it. Uh, while with a decentralized system, that kind of falls more onto you. Or if someone has written some kind of tool that crawls GitHub and checks for certain keywords or something like that. So, yeah, I definitely see the point. But, yeah, like always, it's trade-offs. And I also like that we have different flavors of package managers available to us. And that's why I personally don't really kind of get the whole kind of Carthage versus CocoaPods uh, kind of flame war where for me like the fact that both of these exist and that they serve different audiences and different needs i think is is awesome and when you then have swift pm which you know has it as an as another design i think that's great too like it shows that you can solve the same problem in multiple ways and it all kind of picks different trade-offs and gives you different kind of flexibility and different power yeah, absolutely like it's one of the best things about developing and open source well as developers we have the power to make our own tooling. I don't think there's many other professions. I've never really thought of another one which is equivalent. So we can make our own tools. And key is that it doesn't really cost us anything apart from our time to do so. Like, for example, a blacksmith, <laughs> if such a thing exists anymore, they could <laughs> make their own metal furniture or metal tooling that they need, but it would cost them resources so yeah. it's not something they can just like whip up in an evening unless they have like uh, a lot of spare metal lying around for some reason <laughs> right exactly so one question that i think is pretty interesting is kind of why the swift package manager project got started in the first place because we obviously had both CocoaPods and carthage being like very common solutions to this problem in the community so what do you think that apple felt the kind of need to create like a third big one like their own package manager for Swift? Well, if we start with uh, the Swift was going to target Linux immediately when it was open sourced with plans to, or at least the desire to support all platforms in the future, you need a tool that can run on all those platforms. And CocoaPods and Carthage were strictly for Mac and Apple platform development. Yeah. So immediately there was a need so that you could build Swift on Linux because Swift is hard to build a, a build tool chain around. It's not like, because uh, with if you wrote a C program, it could work anywhere with a make file. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Make doesn't work well for Swift because of the way the module system works, the way that uh, there's like seven or eight files in this module and they can see into each other without having to include each other. And make was really designed for C-like systems where a header was a dependency for a bunch of C files. So if that header changed, you knew what C files to build. It's, so there needed to be a tool that knew how to build Swift and knew how to build Swift well. But also it's important, I think, for the platform vendor to provide this tool. It shows commitment to the ecosystem and uh, paid set of developers working on it can uh, get 
what is necessary done. Like open source often has problems where people don't have the motivation to work on important features. The, the buy-in from Apple showed commitment to Swift. Yeah, absolutely. You see this pretty much every time kind of Apple goes in and does something like whether that is something like Swift Neo, like the new server side framework, or whether it's like some sample code that shows a, a given pattern. It's very often that we say in the community, oh, okay, this is Apple's preferred solution. So let's just go with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Apple do a great job as well as part of the reason I got addicted to Apple platforms. Um, their API is so good. Yeah, like, absolutely. Anyone who has built any other major platform or some SDK of someone else's, uh, or if like, doesn't take long until you find some inconsistency in how it's designed or some thoughtlessness in how it's consumed. So many APIs are designed from the idea of this is the model that I'm thinking of. Now I'll just write that. So it's a literal interpretation of the computational model in that person's head. They're not thinking about the user, the developer experience for people consuming those APIs. And Apple always do. Yeah. Um, some better than others. Like I wish some of these newer iPhone libraries that have been coming out over the last few years were more similar to UIKit, which I think is probably the the crowning glory of Apple's API designs. And UIKit is not as wonderful as it used to be. <laughs> yeah, it's gotten more complex also. And that's another big challenge, just like managing that kind of complexity in terms of the API design, where you want your API to do a lot, but how do you keep it simple if it's going to do a lot, right? Yeah, and uh, one way to do that is to split these things out into more frameworks. And that's a hard decision to make. I know a lot of people who think that foundation's too big, that UI kit's too big, and it should be split out. But there's huge advantages to having monolithic frameworks at the base. And all you have to do is look at something like NPM, where you have 600 dependencies to see that. And a lot of those dependencies do the same things. It's just that transitive dependencies in your graph, so the dependencies of dependencies, they didn't make the same choices about which libraries to use. So you end up with libraries that you have three or four in a React Native graph that do the same thing, and different packages in that graph are using them. So you, you've got all this duplication. And because foundation is bigger, monolithic, people just use foundation. Yeah, absolutely. It's right there in the name, right? The foundation for everything we build. Yeah. I think it's going to be a big reason that Swift is successful over the next five to 10 years and could vie for JavaScript in terms of the number one language if everything goes to plan. Because the dependency graph is uh, just foundation for a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. And also built-in Unicode support that works really well. There's very few languages that have that. Yeah, like you say, a lot of the things are really, uh, really thoughtfully designed and Apple take their time. You know, they don't <laughs> rush to something. Yeah. And sometimes we give them, we sometimes we criticize them for that, that, you know, there are sometimes it feels like they're kind of late to the game, but usually they do things really, really well when they actually do them. Absolutely. Like that was one of the reasons I just didn't fit in trying to do Swift PM at Apple. They, they knew that this was a 10 year project and I wanted it done in a year. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, uh, they were like, no, we shouldn't rush into doing that yet. We need to like carefully plan and think it through. And, uh, well, it was, it was my, my bad, but uh, I knew that the community would benefit enormously from having a set of features that I wanted in that first, uh, you know, public release, which would have been Xcode 9. Because it was just open source up until then, so Xcode didn't come with it. And uh, it was a source of contention, for sure. They have a long-term plan. It's admirable, as you say. Yeah. 
Alright, uh, next up, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about futures and promises, uh, which is a really nice way to model asynchronous code in many different languages, including Swift. But before we do, let's take a very quick break and thank this episode's sponsor, which is a super cool new startup called Wingu that I'm really excited about. Using Wingu's framework, you can quickly and easily use location features like geofences, iBeacons, and NFC in your iOS app. Now, implementing these things yourself can not only be time-consuming, but really tricky to get right when it comes to covering all different edge cases and using this kind of data reliably. You also want things to be efficient in terms of battery life and to be able to handle location data in a really precise way. So getting these things right can take a lot of time, and that's exactly what Wingu helps you with, and so much more. There are two parts to Wingo. First, you have their client SDK that works both on iOS and on Android. On iOS, it's all Swift and it's super easy to use. Just their SDK alone provides a ton of value. You can use it to build highly accurate geofences with more granular updates. You can get much more rich region information and you can use it to communicate with iBeacons or NFC powered devices and do many more location based tasks. But then you have their backend platform, and this is where things get really interesting. Using Wingu, you can push all sorts of content, like text, images, videos, documents, forms, etc., directly from the backend based on location triggers. So say you're building an app for a store, and as soon as one of your users step into that store, they will get fresh, up-to-date offers with rich content directly from the backend. That means that you don't have to update the app to add new content. You don't have to change any code at all. It can all be done directly from Wingu's content management system. Wingu is already working with really big companies like Lego to push up-to-date location-relevant content to their users. So make sure to check out Wingu today. Play around with it and see what kind of cool location-based features that you could add to your app. And here's the really good news. Listeners of this show get both a completely free trial, no credit card required, and Wingo is giving all Swift by Sundell listeners a 15% discount. So check them out at wingu.app slash Sundell to start your free trial and use offer code Sundell15 to get 15% off your subscription. Once again, that's Wingu, W-I-N-G-U dot app slash Sundell and offer code Sundell15 to get 15% off your subscription. Using that URL also helps support this show and all of Swift by Sundell. Thank you so much to Wingu for sponsoring this show, which really helped make this episode possible. All right, so about futures and promises, uh, you have uh, created a open source project called PromiseKit, which is one of the most popular ways to work with futures and promises in Swift. And futures and promises, I think, is probably one of my favorite asynchronous abstractions where you are able to model your asynchronous code in a pretty nice way. And it seems also that futures and promises are getting more and more popular, not only in Swift, but in other languages as well, like JavaScript and others. So first off, Max, what is kind of futures and promises? What uh, do they try to solve? And kind of what's the, uh, what's the kind of abstraction that they provide? So 90%, let's say, of asynchronous operations are one-time callbacks. Uh, one time being important. So you fetch some data from the internet and you get a callback with the data or an error. Promises are just a simple 
abstraction around the concept of a one-time completion that allows you to write code that seems more like a synchronous piece of code. So normally you'd like, uh, it's, let's say it was a synchronous network fetch, you just do let data equals function, like fetch, fetch data. It would be try, of course. And on the next line, you'd use it. So the, the closure is just uh, saying, uh, well, this happens later, and it's an attempt to try and, like a normal closure, a normal completion handler, is an attempt to abstract that away. But then you end up with this nested hell of callbacks. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. A callback calls a callback calls a callback, and you have this pyramid going down. Your code is indented 10 lines in. And uh, error handling in that situation is really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's... Uh, very, very easy to miss an error handler, and then you have a bug in your program. So promises make it so that your code looks async uh, synchronous, so you can remove all the promise kit machinery and look in between the lines, and it will look like an, a, a normal synchronous set of lines, a procedural piece of code. But also, it automatically forces errors to get propagated to a catch handler. And uh, for me, the error handling part was the main reason I wanted this, as well as the chaining part. So it was easier to, like, it makes uh, using asynchronicity much simpler. You just return a promise from your functions, and you can insert that into any other chain. There's no thinking about how the closure fits in with other callers. And refactoring is way simpler. Like, I never want to refactor uh, callbacks because it will have like consequences all over the place. You can often refactor a promise chain and it has no consequences to any other part of your code base. So it's an excellent abstraction for one-time completions, which is a huge amount of the completions that we deal with as iOS developers. And as a result, PromiseKit also provides uh, extensions that wrap every single callback and completion handler that Apple provides so that you can use promises everywhere. That's awesome. Uh, I think the key there that you say is uh, that you actually get a return type because when we use closures or delegates or something else, like there's usually no return from our asynchronous functions. So you will have something like fetch data or load data, you will give it a URL and you give it a closure and it will return void. It won't return anything. And that makes for this nesting that you mentioned earlier. And it also makes things like testing a little bit harder. It makes uh, refactoring harder, like you mentioned as well. And it just in general, makes for code that is a little bit harder to read. While when you have that return type, when you have the, the promise or the future as, a, as an actual return value, uh, your code becomes so much clearer and easier to read and write. Uh, you have a more clear kind of control flow. Well, Swift warns you with promises when you're not consuming the result of an asynchronous operation. While with uh, normal completion handlers is fine if you don't. Uh, there's no issue. Well, I purposely designed promise kits so you get a warning if you didn't use results in the correct manner. Also, cru crucially, since promise kit 5, if you don't have a catch handler somewhere in your train, you get a warning that you didn't consume that promise correctly. Ah, oh, nice. So you're, you're forced to think about the error handling and where the error handling needs to be as well, which usually is right at the bottom of the stack, which could be a chain that goes through 10 or 15 different calls that return promises. And you decide where the base is, where you're going to handle that error. It makes really robust asynchronous systems. And I sincerely recommend that, so, that everybody use promises in like there's probably five or six options at this point. I, obviously, I think Promise Kit's the best, uh, but, <laughs> but you're not uh, biased. <laughs> no. But like using, pick one, use it. Like if you're not, then you should be. It gets rid of an awful lot of bugs. 
Yeah, absolutely. And dealing with errors there at the end of the chain. And what we're talking about there is that let's say you have a network uh, data loader or something like that that loads data over the network and you call like load uh, on it with a URL and then you want to decode that response. Then you can just say dot decoded or something. And that will then return a new promise that actually decodes that JSON that you download into some kind of model. And then you might say dot save in database or something. And that saves the model in your database. And you can build up these really Really nice chains and yeah, it's very functional it becomes very very functional and like you say also at the end you can just say handle the error because when you are doing closure based programming you usually have to handle the error in every single step so you have these like if let error or if result type error equals this then throw that error and it's easy to miss and it's also really like kind of redundant to deal with errors at like every single level instead of just doing it at once oh yeah as I say, it's very easy to miss one, but it's also so much boilerplate. It's horrible. Promises get rid of all the boilerplate and make, uh, well, it's just like writing a, if, if you could imagine your asynchronous system as a set of procedural lines of code, one after the other with a catch handler. So it's all in a do catch. That's what you end up with as close as we can get without language features. And speaking about language features, that is an excellent segue <laughs> because uh, there has been uh, a lot of discussion lately in the Swift developer community. What's kind of the go-to uh, async abstraction will be for the future and no pun intended there. <laughs> um, and in JavaScript, for example, they have recently kind of done a big change about this and they introduced the async and await keywords where you can say that a function is asynchronous and then you can await that function uh, to be completed. And uh, what's interesting, I think, is kind of how JavaScript in particular kind of fitted in futures and promises into that async await model, which is different uh, from other languages like C Sharp, for example. Mm -hmm. So uh, how do you feel about this, uh, Max? Like uh, if we were to get async await or some other kind of built-in language feature for dealing with asynchronous code, how would that kind of influence our use of futures and promises? I think async await would fit beautifully into Swift, partly because of the conventions that Coco has, where a completion handler is almost always, and if it isn't, it's bad, the, the result value, comma, the error, and both are optional. So much like when errors were added to Swift in, what was it, Swift 2, I think, and they went over the Cocoa APIs and converted them by uh, looking at the function signature. If it ended with an optional, well, an in-out error and returned a bool, then it converted that to a throws Swift function, removing the error parameter and the Boolean return. So it, it worked wonderfully. And you could do the same with completion handlers over the whole Cocoa APIs, making them return promise or whatever they choose to call it. I get the impression they're not going to call it promise, which is a pity, I think. Like, uh, I think they're looking at something like task, and that has other connotations. Like promise, even though it's a weird name, it's very clear. The whole community understands. You can look stuff up. You can understand what it is. And it's a name that doesn't have any other uh, parts of uh, what we use that will get confused. Yeah, it's kind of also the same appeal as with Rx. Like the reason people like Rx so much is because you have the same abstractions in many different languages and you can kind of speak the same language when you're speaking with other developers. Exactly. And having something like that, like a shared abstraction, whether that's futures or promises or, or something else, is really, really valuable because you can learn the concept once and then you can apply it in many different languages. It'll be the same abstraction. They just might not pick a good name. Like, I, I'm a big person for names in programming. We create so many concepts 
good names are very important to and uh, so people know what you're talking about and can differentiate it from other similar things but anyway so return a promise or something like that and then you just need some syntactic sugar in the language await and you can annotate functions async I, I expect that'll be what they do so it gets annotated async and then it, it will you'll return like a type and then that'll get transparently converted into a promise type yeah and so then you can do a wait and then you'll just have synchronous looking code it will use coroutines and there'll be consequences and i've been thinking about the consequences for a while like how does it work if uh you call the same function twice uh what's what's that gonna mean what's going on under the hood and it will behave just the same as it does now if you call the same function twice so Ideally, they'll add some primitives to help us prevent that sort of thing happening in situations where it would be bad if you did that. Like you don't want to fetch the same networking thing twice and have the UI go wonky on you, which is something that happens all the time. Uh, good developers, well, senior developers, shall I say, uh, know to disable that button when the network operation is happening because people tap it twice. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, you also have the issue of like sharing state, for example. I mean, ideally, we'd like all of our functions to be pure and just return input. And I just have an input and return an output. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we have something like a cache or something that introduces some form of state. And uh, managing that in an async await kind of coroutine world would, would perhaps be a challenge as well. There's certainly consequences. Like right now you see the closure and you're like, oh, okay, um, this is all happening at different times. So it's sort of more aware of it. But when like all you have is this await keywords in there, like it would be easier to overlook such situations, but it would make a lot of code so much simpler. Like it's just getting rid of the boilerplate of promises essentially. So it would be even nicer. Yeah. Uh, so I think that they'll pick that because so many operations in Coco where we need this sort of stuff for just one time. Like I know that Latner wanted it to happen with Swift 4, so it's already delayed. Uh, until then, yeah, use promises. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It will be. It should be a fairly simple transition as well if you're using promises, if I'm right. Yeah, yeah, hopefully it will be uh, when you follow that kind of same uh, methodology and the same kind of patterns. Uh, you hinted at something there, which I want to talk a little bit more about, which is debugging uh, when you're using something like Futures and Promises, where when you treat your asynchronous code as synchronous, uh, it's very nice and elegant, but it can also generate some problems, like we talked about with concurrency and mutable state and these kind of things. But more specifically to Futures and Promises, uh, when something goes wrong in your chain, sometimes it can be tricky to figure out where it actually went wrong, and all you have is this promise at the end, and you can't really like set breakpoints and step through as easy as you would if you just had that big pyramid where you can just dive in. What are your kind of top tips for debugging code that uses futures and promises? Uh, well, the, the, the biggest problem with debugging in Xcode with PromiseKit is uh, it doesn't have a backtrace that helps you see what's happened before. Yeah. While with a nested set of callbacks, that's a normal uh, stack. So one thing leads to the next, leads to the next. The promise, all you see is the final callback. Uh, so you don't know what happened before. And there's no easy way to solve that. I've tried with various things. It's just the nature of how debugging in Xcode works. Like with dispatch queues, they added something into Xcode itself or the debug toolchain so that it would remember what queues it came from. And that just doesn't work with PromiseKit because I'm a layer below Apple. I can't <laughs> make Xcode more aware. <laughs> right. So, uh, print statements. <laughs> <laughs> old, good old caveman debugging. Yeah. Um, but that's for when you don't know what happened before, uh, which isn't the biggest 
problem with using promise kit the biggest problem is usually like swift gives you bad error messages so during development so i have i have just a page full of like the error messages swift gift you and what it actually means right <laughs> swift gives you the wrong error message if there's an error in a closure yeah an inline closure at least yeah uh they know about it they're gonna fix it uh just sadly they haven't fixed it yet uh but uh debugging like asynchronicity issues like promises help a lot because they make it so everything's sequential there's no chance of things happening at once and this works well for these kinds of asynchronous situations you want one thing to happen the next thing to happen the next thing to happen then finally it goes back to the main queue and then you can synchronize your ui yeah absolutely promise kit makes that very easy so you don't have those sort of problems as much but like if there's any chance that the same chain will be called twice then you need to add protections for that again it will be the same if when swift gets async away it's the same now with completion handlers you just have to take some steps and with promises is easy enough you can keep a uh, a property for that promise on your view controller or whatever and then you can actually use that as some sort of memoization so you don't have to do things twice so you can just keep the promise it abstracts away the asynchronicity completely so you can query the promise say hey if you finished yet if not add a handler so it does something when it's finished and if it is already finished, then you can just take that value straight away. Yeah, that's really convenient. Um, one thing that I usually do when I debug futures and promises is that I have these uh, extensions on the promise type that give me kind of debug operations. So for example, for a network call that returns uh, some form of data, like a promise of data, I have this extension where I can just say dot printing JSON, and I can just insert that into my chain. So it will just return the same promise as it is given. So it won't change the, the, the chain at all, but it will just print out the JSON that I have, or maybe it will do something with it, like log it in some other way. And if you have these kind of a little bit of a tool chain of, of extensions that you can add, debugging becomes a lot easier because you can just go into your network stack, for example, you can just add these like printing JSON or uh, debug this or set a breakpoint or something like that. And then you can actually get a pretty good deb debugging experience, even though, uh, like you mentioned, there is really no stack trace. So you will have to kind of create your own stack trace in a way. It's a pain. Yeah, PromiseKit has a tap function and the default uh, thing the tap function does is print the current result that the promise has. So yeah, we, we added some features to try and help. Yeah, that just kind of gives you a clue of where to look, right? And then you might have an idea where you should put your breakpoint mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Yep. Awesome. So uh, yeah, futures and promises, big thumbs up. And we'll put a link in the show notes to both Promise Kit. And I also have a piece on my blog about kind of writing your own futures and promises library, not maybe because you would want to do that, but just to kind of learn how futures and promises work under the hood. It's, it's a very fun exercise writing a promise library. <laughs> maybe this <laughs> is, is why yeah. there are so many of them. Uh, it was quite challenging at first. I didn't realize how complicated it can be because a promise can have any number of handlers, for example, like you, you forget these things. There's another advantage of promises, of course, uh, that you can just return a promise and then it could have multiple uh, callers who care about the result and having something execute when the result happens. Yeah. But it's, it's fun to, fun to write, but I would recommend using one of the mature options. There's lots of little caveats. That Definitely. Yeah. Bug fixing over the, I've been maintaining it for six years. Uh, I genuinely believe it's bug free at this point. <laughs> nice. The first bug free software on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's a, it's a pure abstraction. So it's possible to reason about all the possible things it can do. Like if it used the file system in any manner or any kind of global state, then I wouldn't be able to feel that certain. But pure, pure libraries, there's a point where you can be 
I, I can't imagine where there could even be a bug at this point. Right. But I'm sure there is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so for our final main topic for this episode, we want to talk about how we can scale up our open source projects. Because like we mentioned earlier, it's kind of hard to predict what the future of a open source project will be. Sometimes they end up going kind of nowhere or it's just something that you use yourself or within your team. And sometimes you wake up one day and you're on the front page of Hacker News and all of a sudden a lot of people <laughs> want to use your open source project. So you've obviously gone through this now a few times, both with Homebrew, which has grew to become enormous, and also with PromiseKit, which is uh, you know quite big and has a lot of contributors as well. So what for you have been like the key components in kind of taking an open source project and making it into more of a big thing with more people contributing? Like what have been some of the kind of key learnings from that? Well, if, um, if you want a lot of people to contribute, then it's vital to have great documentation and an easy to understand code base and use of the tool. Like the tool has to be self-explanatory in many ways, which goes back to what I was saying about naming. It's very important to pick good names so that people using your APIs and understanding just the general, like the source files need to be named well, for example, and like have as few source files as possible where people get apathy when there's 60 folders full of sources it's very difficult to get an overview of that quickly if you want people to contribute then it has to be designed for contributors uh, if you want it to be popular it has to be designed for the developers who are going to consume it so make sure everything's well named again like the api needs to be great uh, you need a great readme something that uh, shows how to use it uh, so many readmes i read and they don't even show you what the import name is for the module you're going to be calling like you have to figure it out yourself because uh, it's not always the same name as the project. Like this is fundamentals. If you want people to be using your stuff, there could be there needs to be no barriers to entry. So that also means supporting all the package managers. Uh, if you want people to be passionate about your project, you have to make it so they can use the tools that they want to use with your project. And there's an enormous amount of work overall uh, if you want your open source software to be successful. Uh, it's well worth it, in my opinion. Like the amount of job opportunities I've had over the years because of Homebrew and PromiseKit is phenomenal. Like having a good open source project on your resume is better than anything else your resume could contain. It's better than a resume, period. Right? It's like better than the resume itself. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's proof that you can make things uh, that you can lead uh, to a certain extent, depending on how many contributors there were that you know how to make things that are good, that people want to use. Uh, it's great. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one thing you mentioned there is like kind of the organization of the project. And I think one really key point there is to not make it intimidating, like both for the user of a project, uh, like to make it easy to get into and not feel like like a scary big thing that's going to take me hours and hours to learn. And also like if someone wants to contribute something and like maybe fix a bug or, you know, add a simple new feature, it shouldn't be too hard to kind of understand where in the code base that feature should be implemented, like have a good path to contribution as well. Absolutely. Like, um, I think a lot of people would contribute bug fixes more, far more than happens if they knew how to find the area of the code that's broken. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's usually pretty difficult. I, a lot of projects I fixed over the years, the first question I ask in the bug report is, can you point me to the part of the code where this happens so I can try and fix it myself? Because I couldn't figure it out, but you should be able to figure it out. If you have well-named sources, not too many, and not nested directories full of stuff, 
then they can probably find it and have a go at fixing themselves. But that also depends on the tooling. Like it's hard with CocoaPods and Carthage to easily edit the sources for your dependencies. And so that's why with SwiftPM from the very start, I wanted it to be trivial for people to be able to edit their own dependencies and then thus fork and contribute those fixes. Like people feel like they can't, there's no easy way. Like I, I, did this with homebrew itself as well. Like uh, I was trying to fix some gem at some point and in order to just get a copy locally of this gem, which is a Ruby package uh, and then edit it and then try and make it work was a huge hurdle. And I was like, I I did it in the end, but I was like, this sucks. I want people to be able to fix open source. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's, That's how open source is meant to be. Yeah, because you already have so many barriers to entry, right? Like, first of all, you have to understand the project. You have to also have the time to do something like this. It has to be important enough for you to actually dive in and do it. And then if you also add all the tooling and and lots of extra hoops you have to jump through, you know, the chances that you will actually go in and do that just decrease and decrease and decrease. So I definitely agree that, uh, you know, having a structure that is uh, that is welcoming and that it may, to make it as easy as possible to just get started that is definitely key and that is something that i've personally kind of learned over time and also i'm i'm keep learning with with each project is i'm always trying to make that easier where you know in the beginning i didn't know that kind of stuff so it was usually a lot harder to kind of uh, find your way through the code base yeah yeah exactly just imagine that you're someone who has never seen this project before they've just read about it somewhere and been referred to it and they're they're vetting it you're you're having to sell it and you talked a little bit there about tools and automation and i think this is definitely a big part of the kind of success story behind a lot of these big projects Uh, when felix krause was on the show for example we talked about fastlane and how so much of the process of contributing to fastlane is actually automated with bots and things like that so uh, how do you usually use this kind of tooling in your open source projects like to make it as easy as possible to contribute yeah, well, I haven't really used any bots, I have to say. Like, I have um, code coverage running on PromiseKit just to make sure that we don't drop below testing. And we have CI, obviously. CI is very important, but uh, bots for issues. Um, I would probably use them on my next big project. Like, I, There was a great uh, talk by Mike McQuaid about how people much prefer to be told off by robots than by people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's true. So uh, something I've certainly noticed over the years is that I, the way you treat people in the tickets, you have to be really nice even when they're not. And I'd much rather like um, not be doing things that upset people personally. And so I've avoided that. Like, I, I go to the point now where if I don't like something in a pull request, I'll just merge it. And then afterwards, I'll commit the, the fix. Because right. <laughs> people, like, understandably, don't want to be told that there's something wrong with their contribution when it's open source. This isn't their job. They're not being paid to put up with you telling them you don't like something. So having a robot be able to do it would be great. But some of these things, it's, the AI is just not there like, yet. Uh, for being able to figure out, like, is this this is good code? Yeah, right now it's just come down to heuristics and linters and these kind of things, right? So, so mm-hmm. there are definitely limits in terms of what you can do with them, but they can also be like super useful because, like you say, like bots have no emotions, right? <laughs> They're just like you're just being told the facts. Like here is the facts. Like your method is three lines too long. Please correct it or something like that. Yeah. 
Exactly. It also reduces the turnaround times a lot. And uh, I also do a lot of those kind of fixes that you mentioned. I usually call them in the commit history, like nitpicky fixes or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the reason I do that, it, it's, it feels sometimes like strange to do something like that. But at the end of the day, I'm just trying to make it easier for everybody and, and make it easier for things to just proceed. Because if you have someone, for example, sitting in uh, the US or, or in Asia or something on the other side of the world from me, uh, if I get around to reviewing a pull request maybe two days after they made it, then there's going to be another day before they can actually make the fix. Then maybe it goes another day until I have a look at it. And all of a sudden, you have this code which has been sitting there for days and days. So if I instead can reduce that time and take on some of the work myself to actually, you know, make this code the way I'd like it to be, uh, I think it's just easier on everybody. But again, if you can have a bot do that, that's probably again easier because it reduces the manual work. Felix is right. Like, and uh, he's like a shining example of the amount of tooling someone can produce if they can uh, get this automation working well for them. Yeah. Like uh, I need to explore that with my next big project for sure. Uh, like with homebrew, like there was so much of my time got taken up with a lot of little uh, details of how things worked, and so I, I usually expanded the tooling to help me there. But just it wasn't auto, it wasn't automated, it wasn't integrated with GitHub, so that was the only difference. And uh, regarding what you were saying about uh, the nitpicky commits, like it's not just for everybody else you do that; it's also for you. I think a lot of resource maintainers need to recognize this fact like you are the main person working on the project most of the time most open source is one maintainer and so if you can't understand the code properly because its style is wrong or the way it works is a little too foreign for you you should change that um it doesn't matter if someone else would think the opposite it's for you that you need to make this work otherwise you're going to lose enthusiasm if you don't understand your own code base yeah absolutely that's a really good point and I think this also ties into the last thing I want to talk about, about kind of building larger open source projects. And that is like, what kind of goals that you might have for an open source project? Because this idea of building an open source project that becomes really big and it becomes used by a lot of people, it very often we think of that as being the only kind of end goal for an open source project. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently, like there are different reasons why you might do open source and kind of, you know, what kind of goals you might have for it. So first of all, I want to ask you, like, how important do you think it is to have like a clear goal for an open source project? Do you think that's kind of fundamental or is that something you can kind of more figure out as you go? Um, I think it's very important to have overall like ten pole type goals. Yeah. So you know where it's headed. Having smaller goals for exactly how it's going to work, I think it's very important to continuously change your mind about that. Try out different things. Don't be afraid to throw away code that didn't work out. A lot of people are afraid to throw away code. <laughs> like, you know, I wrote that. It's great. Uh, maybe it's not. Maybe maybe you should be doing it differently. Uh, so listen to what people are saying as well. Like, uh, I, I changed how PromiseKit works in several places because of good feedback from other people. Yeah, but like uh, you need to, you need to have an overarching goal for how it's going to work for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also here it's important to define a goal that is kind of your own that you feel passionate about because. One thing that I've realized is that not all open source projects need to become big or need to be extremely general purpose or something like that. They can be very niche. Like take something like Splash, for example, the syntax highlighter I wrote. 
I don't think that will ever be a big open source project <laughs> because the need is not there for syntax highlighting. Like not that many people want to have their own syntax highlighter. Uh, but for me, it solves a need for myself. And also it was a lot of fun to write it. So I think that can be a great goal in of its own, just having fun, learning something and putting something out there for other people to learn. And that's actually been a big eye opener for me with Splash in particular, where the biggest kind of feedback that I've gotten hasn't been, oh, I've used Splash and it's great. It's been, I read the source code of Splash <laughs> and it's great. And that makes me really happy because it just means that someone could learn from it without actually using it. And that just gives it, you know, another kind of value for people. And I think it's important to recognize that, that, you know, the goal that you set for your open source project doesn't have to be the same goal as everyone else. It can be a goal that you feel passionate about and that's great. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like the primary motivation that you should have for writing it is you need it or you are excited about writing it because it's an interesting thing to do. Yeah. Uh, don't expect fame. Like uh, certainly most open source projects are going to be much smaller and more niche. And um, you should be f expect that. Like I've written probably 40 or 50 open source projects at this point and uh, two of them <laughs> became famous. So it, it, yeah. it can't be that your goal is fame, but like you write something great like Splash, people use it and you get a lot out of that. And uh, it helps you, like people are scared of open source as well because they don't want people to see their code. They're worried that their code is going to be bad. But for me, like the thing that made my code better over the years is because I open sourced it. And I, <laughs> right, exactly. I wanted, I, I was worried about its quality. So I tried harder and I learned faster because of that. And people like gave me feedback and contributions, which helped me to learn uh, new techniques and new styles and apply that. So you'll get better as well. I, I wouldn't like, no one's code is really terrible, especially if you're using something great like Swift anyway. Like, it's, <laughs> right. it's much harder to write bad code to Swift. Yeah, and the worst thing that can happen is that, you know, someone sees it, they give you some feedback and you improve and then you learn something new. So yeah, I definitely agree. And that can also be, you know, a ton of value and being able to show that off as well. We talked earlier about, you know, having open source on your resume, uh, being able to show like a clear path of what you actually learn because you've got the commit history can also be great. Like when you showed, look, I actually learned this new pattern and I refactored this project. That can be a ton, you know, that can be really valuable as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um Open source is a difficult sell, I think. Like, I, I find it very difficult to define why I enjoy it so much and have done so much. And uh, interestingly, uh, I asked Chris Latner why he has done so much open source while I was at Apple. And he was like, oh, that's a very interesting question. But he couldn't really answer me either. <laughs> right. This is inner desire to do that, right? Yeah. Like, I think wanting to try and improve the world in some way. Like, yeah. certainly, like, I want apps to be better and I want people to be able to make apps that actually do improve the world. Like, I don't think I'm the kind of person who's going to go out there and fix social issues or help people who have needs um, like some people are able to do. But I can do this little thing which makes it so people can make software which does improve the world. And I feel like that's like my contribution. So that's part of the reason for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really cool thing. And uh, you can really have a big impact on the community, which is pretty amazing. Uh, what do you say? Should we uh, round off this episode by answering some questions from the audience? Yeah, sure. All right. Our first question here comes from Ellen Shapiro, and she's asking what I think is on everyone's mind, <laughs> which is, <laughs> why didn't the Swift Package Manager support iOS out of the box? Given Apple's kind of major focus on iOS as their kind of primary platform right now, 
How come Mac and Linux were the first platforms to kind of be supported? So it comes somewhat back to the fact that Apple had like a 10-year plan. They want to make sure everything that is released is great and will not have any maintenance or bad consequences in the future. So everything they do, they have to, have to be carefully planned. And so it was a tester in a way. Right? Is this working well for Mac and Linux? If so, then we can push it to iOS. Probably iOS is more complicated as well. It would require more Xcode integration, which initially wasn't done. Like the very fact that Swift PM initially generated Xcode projects was because me and Daniel campaigned for it quite uh, heavily and in the end managed to get buy-in so it would do something. And I whipped up the initial implementation of that in like a few days because we were determined that it would be temporary, but of course it's still the way it works now, unfortunately. Because... There would, it would require more buy-in from a lot more of the department, basically, like making it work well with all the platforms, uh, making sure it was well-prepared, well-planned. Uh, but I wanted it to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think everyone wants. And uh, you could run a script and make it work, quite frankly. You just have to change the targets. Um, well, actually, it actually does generate frameworks that can be built against iOS, but you have to like change some of the other build settings. It's not really impossible. So you could do it, but it, the lack of direct support has been a problem over the years for sure. And like it, it triggered like CocoaPods uh, to stop doing active development for a while because they thought SwiftPM was just going to replace CocoaPods and they were fine with that. And then now here we are like two and a half years later or whatever, and uh, still not properly integrated into Xcode. It's, it's a pity. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think everyone wants uh, Swift Package Manager to support iOS because, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of people really like it and want to use it kind of everywhere. Uh, SPN is definitely the future. It's it's going to be the package manager you use. It's just hard to say when. Yeah. I think 2020 is reasonable. Reasonable time frame. Nice. Lots of things happening in 2020. ARM <laughs> on Mac, right? Maybe we'll have Marzipan. We'll have SPM on iOS finally. So 2020 is going to be a good year. <laughs> All right, our next question here comes from Simon Anderson, and he would like us to talk a little bit about a, what makes a good interview process, like what kind of questions and tests, et cetera, would you know, make sense to use in a good interview process? Should we use, a, like, should, should interviewers use a whiteboard or not? And um, I know you, you might have some opinions about this, Max, so what's kind of a good interview process for you? Um, well, certainly it depends on what kind of position you're applying for like part of the reason i wasn't prepared for my google interview is because i asked the recruiter are they going to ask me hard computer science questions because i don't know computer science that well i've learned what i need over the years but i didn't take it it wasn't my degree uh, and he said no no they're interviewing for ios development so i was like oh well, great that's what i'm good at right now <laughs> right. Uh, so then when they did ask me a bunch of computer science questions that was strange and i didn't do great uh, and it was not really terribly surprising to me. So, like, really, definitely interview for what kind of position the person's going in for. Well, they should have, like, I, half of my questions were about app development, so I answered those quite well. And whiteboards suck. Like, don't do it. No one programs on a whiteboard, so how do you expect them to do a good job? They're used to an IDE or some sort of editor that gives them completion and things like that. I can't even remember half the APIs I use, so I rely on completion. Like, they should be able to Google, because that's what you do in normal life. But, like, for me, the best kind of interview is um, a trial. Like, give them a small interview over the phone, ask them a few questions to prove that they really do know how to do programming like they say they do and then give them a three-week remote trial see how they do 
How do they integrate in your team? Uh, are they able to do the work that you need them to do or not? That seems like the fairest way to do it to me. Like, obviously, that's a lot more expensive. Like, you have to pay someone for three weeks or whatever. But maybe you could get away with paying them less. Like, they understand it's a trial. Uh, but th- if you want great staff, then you need to have worked with them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. And uh, the trial idea is very interesting. And like with everything, there are really big trade-offs here, right? And not all solutions will be good for all people. For example, a trial might work really great for someone who's just fresh out of school or something, or is actively looking looking for a job because they might be able to take that time but it might be harder to convince someone to leave their job to go for a trial right absolutely like it's not as though i thought this through all the way and that's a great point uh, but it, it would be the best in an ideal scenario absolutely yeah i agree and i think that's a way to design a good interview process is to start with the ideal scenario to say what would be the absolute best both for us as the company and for the candidates and i think this is also important to remember like In a way, when you are interviewing someone, you're also kind of showing them your company in a very kind of public way. And this is a chance to give a good impression because, of course, if you have a terrible interview process, even if you do end up getting the job, chances are you might not want to take it because you didn't get a good kind of first impression. So for, for me, it comes down a lot to what you also said, like try to simulate, and this can be really tricky, but try to simulate the kind of real life working conditions that you will have working in this company. And what I usually do personally when I interview someone is I sit down with them and I take a look at the actual app that they would be working on. And I walk through it and I ask some questions like, how would you implement this feature? How would you implement that feature? And do some pair programming maybe, like ask them to show how they would implement something in Xcode, like by sharing their screen, not in you know, not on a whiteboard or something like that. And to really try to go that extra mile also as the person doing the interview to set the person up for success, not to just say, can you reverse a binary tree, right? And then just sit back and watch them fail because that's just not nice, right? Like try to give them the tools that they could use to succeed because that's what you want also in the team. Like in a good working environment, you want your employees or the people you work with to have all the tools they need to succeed. And I think also, you know, in an interview process, you you want to show that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's very hard. I, I get it. I have done interviews in my time. It's, it's very difficult to interview people and figure out if they're the right fit and if they have the skills that you need them to have. Um, I get it. And I, I hold nothing against Google. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very hard. And in a way, like, you know, the whiteboard thing, it's it's in a way like an abstraction, right? You design an abstraction to kind of, here's, a, you know, can you solve this problem or something like that? And they more take a look at the kind of meta angles, like how do you approach the problem? How do you break it down? So I think this is also something that a lot of people misunderstand with whiteboard interviews. It's not so much about, can you write this algorithm, you know, by heart? It's more like, how do you approach the problem? But of course, if you have done it before, it's also a kind of unfair advantage. So yeah, yeah exactly. Like test, testing those composite questions, like what does it really prove? And that's that's why the tweet was so viral. I think because like I had a, uh, all this evidence that I could build actual products and they were successful, and I had given them enough thought that they were successful. And yet, like I was being tested on elementary questions that anyone could learn. Uh, what, what would it really prove? Yeah, And I went home and I learned it and I did it because I wanted to prove to myself that I <laughs> could. And that's, right. that's the thing for me. I, the computer science I have, I don't know if you have a computer science degree. I don't, no. I'm uh, I'm self-taught, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like I, I, over the years, have learned quite a lot 
well, enough, but only stuff that I needed <laughs> yeah. for what I was interested in writing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a uh, it's a tricky question for sure, and uh, and there's no kind of silver bullet answer here, like like with most things. Uh, but I think the most important thing is just that kind of you know continuous evaluation and iteration on an interview process as well to you know find something that works really well and to also like hear what candidates think about it like was this a good process or not because like I mentioned earlier you want to give that really good first impression and you don't want to you don't you don't want to like give the wrong impression of the company that you're that you're representing. Yeah, totally. Like the best candidates are going to have a lot of choice, so you need to make them want to be part of your company too. All right, so that's all the questions for this episode. Thanks so much to everyone who sent in questions and who continue to do so. It's always really cool to hear what you want us to talk about and to also kind of influence the content of this show. Uh, but for now, this is it. Uh, we've reached the end of this episode. So all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Max, for joining me on this episode. Uh, I had a great time. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was a true pleasure to have you on and so many great discussions. So yeah, that was really, really great. Uh, if people want to find you online and find some of your work, I know that you just launched a new app, for example. Uh, where should they go? Well, I'm MXCL everywhere. So Twitter, GitHub, all the other services. Uh, apart from Reddit, because I keep deleting my Reddit accounts. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, and I recently released Canopy, which is uh, push notifications for GitHub, because I've wanted push notifications for GitHub for 10 years, and I kept expecting GitHub to do it themselves, and now I've done it. I'm sure they'll Sherlock me within the next few months. Um, <laughs> but there's apps for Mac and iOS, and I, I built it because, for me, uh, being responsive with your open source is very important to ensuring its success and also to making sure that people uh, talk about it. Like if you answer someone's request for help or even a pull request, like within a few seconds, it really blows them away. <laughs> and yeah, uh, with Canopy, you can because you get the push notification, you tap it, it takes you straight to that issue and you go, oh, wow, thanks. And uh, yeah. they probably think you're a bot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A bot with emotions, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, that's a really good one. Uh, definitely make sure to check that out. We'll put a link in the show notes to Canopy if you want to you know, get a, get a better grip on your push notifications from GitHub. Um, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at John Sundell. And you can find the show notes for this episode at swiftbysundell.com slash podcast slash 36. Uh, once again, a big thanks to Wingu for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to check them out as well. And all of these links and everything that we've talked about will be in the show notes. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode. <laughs>